Hey everyone, it's Garrett. We're off this week, but I know that many of you listening are music educators, so I wanted to share that I was the guest yesterday on the Music Ed Matters podcast with Dr. Emily Williams Birch. We had a really great conversation about commercial music and how educators from a classical background can incorporate popular styles of music into their curriculum. I'm really happy that I get to share our conversation with you as a bonus episode. When you finish listening to this, you're going to want to go over to Emily's podcast and check out past episodes. She's on every week with a different music educator and all the conversations are just fantastic. Emily's somebody that I've run to a number of times presenting at different conferences across the country. She's a fabulous speaker and she's got just a really fresh, practical approach to music education that I really admire. So check out her podcast. Have a happy Thanksgiving, and I'll be back on Monday with more Selling Sheet Music. Welcome to the Music and Matters podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Emily Williams-Birch, and this podcast, it exists for you. Whether you're a music lover, an educator, a choir member, each week we bring guests to the show to help explore what matters in music. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Music Ed Matters podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Emily Williams-Birch, and today we are talking to composer, arranger, commercial music expert, presenter, teacher, all those fun things, Mr. Garrett Breeze. In this conversation, we talk about so much. We define commercial music, how you can utilize it in your classroom. We talk about programming and where to look for the things we even talk about. Boom, boom, boom. Copyright. (laughs) There's a lot of really fun little tidbits in this episode, and I'm really thankful to introduce you to Garrett. Make sure you check out all the episode notes as he has a ton of resources on his website and his own podcast. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Kinnison Coral Company and Kaleidoscope Adventures. And if you're looking for a way to get with other people doing this thing, go over to patreon.com slash musicedmatters. Everyone over there supports this platform and bringing awesome guests onto the show, like Mr. Garrett Breeze. That's enough for me. Let's listen to Garrett Breeze as we learn all about commercial music and how it can help us in the education world. Today on the Music Ed Matters podcast, we are talking to composer, arranger, commercial music presenter, teacher extraordinaire. How'd I do? Was that, did I that's, cover everything? Yeah. That's more than I deserve. <laughs> We're talking to Garrett Breeze. How's it going, Garrett? Good. How are you? I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I've been a fan of yours ever since we met. Uh, as clinicians at that virtual ACDA for Alabama a couple years ago. And I was just blown away by how much energy you brought to the little tiny Zoom screen. I think you do that teaching online thing better than anyone I've seen. So anyway, I'm glad we're finally able to connect and, and talk a little more. It was really fun. So we bumped into each other at that virtual time, which was really cool because I sat in on your sessions too. And then we bumped in actual face-to-face, human-to-human contact at Tennessee ACDA this summer. And I'm like, you came up and said who you were. And I'm like, I know. This is, it's so cool when you see someone in person. It's you from the internet. I know. It's you from the little Zooms box. (laughs) It's so cool. Well, y'all, if you've ever, if you've ever met Garrett, he has the coolest like you ask for a business card oh yeah no one step up like level this thing to the next level times 10 it's like a little jump drive with everything you could possibly need it's amazing what got that started for you well like when i first started composing um the thing to do was kind of hand out cds of like your demo reel you know 
Um, and I'm not, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough that I used to have CDs of my stuff to give to people, you know, potential clients and that sort of thing. And, and I eventually just sort of modernized that and decided to go to, to flash drives because people aren't going to throw that away. Cause even if they don't want to hire you ever again, like they still get a flash drive out of the deal, you know, and it's got your name on it. And so it's a little reminder, you know, that sits on their desk forever and ever. That's such a, it's like swag. It's like you have created your own Garrett Bree swag. Well, and you can just go buy on Amazon. They have like these hundred packs of like of like cheap USB drives. And then my wife just printed out these like GarrettBreeze.com stickers, you know, on the clear, on like the clear paper, you know, so we just like cut them up. And we just spent a night watching TV and like putting stickers on these flash drives. And then I was all ready to go for my big presentation. Oh, that's really cool. I appreciated you handing that to me. And I've been so excited to have this conversation. So before we dive into talking about commercial music and composing and arranging and the canon versus the career, we're going to get to all these awesome things. You have to tell us who is Garrett Breeze and how did you get into music? Sure. Well, I am 100% a product of music education in schools because I um, my mom did teach me how to play piano, but beyond that, we didn't have really any sort of musical background in the family. I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, so I knew I had an interest in music, um, but I started in band in the sixth grade um, playing trombone. And again, it's like the reason I picked trombone is because when the band director came by in the fifth grade to let us try it out, like I could get noise out of the trombone and I couldn't get it out of any of the other ones. So that's what I played, you know, and it's just yeah. like... Looking back on it now, it's like it seems like such a consequential decision, right? You know, but I have no, I had, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, um, but I really just fell in love with it. You know, I did, I did everything: band, orchestra, choir, show choir, marching band. You know, I was that kid. My Where did senior you grow year up, high though? school. I grew up in Indianapolis. Okay. Yeah, so I went to North Central High School, Indianapolis. Um, just random factoid, that's also where my mother went to school and graduated No way. From. I am not making that up. No way. Yeah, of all the schools in Indianapolis, that is exactly where my mom went to school. My grandparents live in Indianapolis still. Was she in choir? No. Or band or anything? No. no. Well, she okay. played flute. Yes, I take that back. She was in band. Oh, don't quote me on that. She played flute. She played piano really well, too. I don't okay. know. But North Central, because I had her high school ring for a long time. Really? Well, yeah. well, then you know all about that. So, but yeah, so I mean, I was that I was that kid who did everything my senior year, I was in four music classes. And I remember going to my guidance counselor and explaining it to him. And he was, he was like, Well, I guess I guess there's no reason why you can't do this, like you're gonna graduate. And I guess if you're gonna have a career in music, like, okay, you know, he's like, he just like didn't know what to do with it. Because I was like, I, you know, I, I did, I did, I think it was, um, I did concert band, jazz band, choir, and music theory were like four of my seven classes, Ooh, you know, so basically I awesome. spent, I was basically a music major before I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> Good way but, to practice. Um, but yeah, so I really got into arranging and composing when I was in high school. Frankly, it started out because um, in the sixth grade, trombone parts are really boring, you know, and so <laughs> I wanted to be able really to, <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to be able to play, you know, like, uh, I was really into movie soundtracks and that sort of and that sort of thing, you know. So I really wanted to play Star Wars and I really wanted to play, you know, Lord of the Rings and all this other stuff that I was hearing. And and so I would be, you know, at first just I guess just transcribing stuff, and then eventually, um, you know, the first piece I ever composed was in the eighth grade. Um, my orchestra director like let us do it on the concert, you know. And I got a recording somewhere. I'm sure it sounded terrible, but you know, like uh, That's so cool, I, I just. I just, you know, I, I had a lot of really supportive uh, teachers along the way. 
that um, encouraged me and gave me the opportunity, you know, to 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 write music and give me feedback and put it in front of their ensembles. And so, like, by the time by the time I went to um, college, I like I knew I wanted to do music, but I couldn't really figure out where my place was in mm-hmm. you know in the industry. I kind of I kind of spent a lot of time waffling back and forth, like, well, should I do music edge? Should I do performance? Should I do composition? You know, and I and I couldn't really find my place until um, I found the commercial music degree, and that was when everything sort of clicked into place because um, it's a little bit of a catch-all because if you're um, well, what I tell my students is if you're going to have a career in music, you basically have two options. You can be an educator or you can be a freelancer, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and that doesn't matter if you're a commercial or a classical or whatever, you know, it's like, those are pretty much the options. Cause there's not really anywhere you can go like, here's my application. Give me a job in music. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so anyway, yeah, I, I just, but that, that, that program really, um, it taught me a lot because you still have to do you still have to do performance, but then you're also in the studio recording and you're learning technology and, and music notation software and, um, you know, invoicing and, and business skills and all, you know, all of that kind of stuff. skills that we don't get in music ed. That's right. So it, anyway, um, the original life plan was actually that I was going to move to LA and be a film composer. And then um, I don't remember at what point, but um, you know, eventually just kind of decided that wasn't the right path for me. Um, and at that point, I had already started arranging on the side for um, high school show choirs. Um, that was kind of my big break. Um, I started arranging for my teacher after I left. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, she would have a student teacher who would hear the music. And then when they got a job, they would hire me, you know, and then mm-hmm. she'd have another student teacher that would go get a job and then hire me. And then it kind of just it kind of just grew organically from there. And so after a while, I realized like, oh, I actually have like a decent amount of work with this. And so um, I ended up just being, I'm, I'm 100% freelance, full-time arranging, orchestrating, composing, doing commissions, doing odd jobs, copy jobs, just whatever it is that people need. So, okay, this is really cool because I didn't know any of this background. For people who don't know a lot about commercial music, can you give us like a general definition of what commercial music means? Well, I think the simplest definition is that it's, you know, music for money, right? It's meant to be consumed, right? Like either on streaming services or on tour, but it also, a lot of the time it has a functional purpose to it. You know, like it's the soundtrack for a video game or it's the soundtrack for a movie or it's, you know, um, you know, to a, you know, maybe it's an artist album. And so all of the songs are meant to support or promote what they're doing. Um, but if you just think about, maybe this is a simpler way of putting it, but just anything you, any music you hear outside of the concert hall, you know, could be considered commercial music because it's not necessarily a stylistic definition, you know, because you have classical music that's recorded and, and produced for TV or, you know, released on streaming services and that sort of thing. So it's, it's not, it's not bound to one particular style, but I do think in general, um, it's for commercial consumption, and it's um, often based off of songwriting. And so you have like song form, uh, basic songwriting chord progressions. Those kinds of things tend to be, um, you know, structurally 
the foundation of the music. Obviously, there's lots of exceptions, but that's kind of the starting point. So, okay, this is a great definition. Some good quotes will come out of that, I'm sure, once I listen back to it, because it's really helpful to think about it, especially as educators, when we're talking to our students about possible career fields. You said it perfectly. You either teach or you freelance. There's not really a middle ground there. And, so and, that's, we, not to say, and that's not to say teaching disqualifies you from doing any of the other stuff, but in terms right. of like where you can actually get a job. It's like you can get hired at a, you know, a school or a teaching institution um, or you can make it on your own. And, and, and the opposite is true. You could be a freelance, you know, piano teacher. And mm-hmm. so again, that's, I just feel like there's a lot of people perceive this divide that doesn't really need to be there between like the world of education and then the music industry as a whole. Um, but unfortunately I think people have, have kind of just gotten narrow minded in their views about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they, and maybe it's just they're too busy and overworked. I mean, I I, I guess I'll make this dis- I'll make this disclaimer now. Um, I'm not trying to like dump more stuff on educators that you know that right. I think they need to do. Like they have plenty to do already. But um, but yeah, I mean, I do think like incorporating commercial music into your teaching um, is going to help your students engage with the music more, and it's also going to help them have a better understanding of how to interact with music when they graduate. Because wow. unless you're going to choir concerts as uh, as an adult, you know, as a graduate, like you're not going to encounter music in the same way as you do when you're in school. Right. That's it's, it's how you interact with music beyond it, which I'm glad you said that because it's a perfect segue into something you mentioned in the notes. So listeners, whenever I have a guest on the podcast, they have this link where they schedule their episode and they get to make comments like, what do you want to talk about? What are some areas of interest? And Garrett brought up something that I have been dying to talk about. And he said, it's called Music Ed Matters, not Choir Ed Matters. So do you want me just to focus more on vocal world? And I'm so glad you said that because yes, I am a vocalist. I played oboe in high school and middle school, just random fact. And I started as a piano major, not a vocalist. So two random facts that not a lot of people know. I switched to voice because I couldn't handle being in the practice room solo. Like, hello. That's a real thing. That That is is a a real thing. thing. That That is is a a real thing. thing. 100%. So I switched to voice because I'm like, we can all practice together. (laughs) Well, you know, and I think a lot of vocalists are sort of like secretly like closet instrumentalists, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think I still think it's hilarious. You know, I studied trombone for 15 years all the way gr- through grad school. And now people know me as a choral arranger, you mm-hmm. know, it's just like who'd have figured. Right. And I think that's the point that I'm so glad you're the one who asked, because, yeah, the, the podcast is called Music Ed Matters, because in the whole grand scheme of things, educating the world on music, giving a place for advocacy for music educators, whether you're a general music teacher or a choral person or a band or orchestra person, it's making those transfers. So yes, I often come across very choral heavy because my hands are like my, my lab choir is a a community choir. My students, however, are pre-service band choir and orchestra students. I teach secondary methods period, secondary instrumental, orchestral, and choral. And so I'm I'm glad you brought up the conversation because I think whatever we choose to go with this direction, it's our job as listeners to translate it, to make the transfers. How does this apply to me and my musical path, if that makes sense? Oh, 100%. And I think, um, you know, I've done a lot of work um, like orchestrating for ensembles that are accompanying choirs. And there's mm-hmm. always a little bit of translation that goes on between like the instrumental side and the vocal side, you know, uh, getting everybody on the same page. But I mean, really, it's all, 
it's all the same. It's all the same thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like what you just said all the way back to the beginning. It's about teaching our students how to interact and engage with music beyond the school setting. Well, and I just think about like the goal, our goal as educators is not to like become a factory for churning out professional musicians. Mm. But I do think we have a responsibility to lay things out so our students that do have that interest can go into it with their eyes open and knowing what they're getting into and knowing what opportunities there are. Um, that's kind of why I started talking about arranging. You know, I've, I've kind of done the rounds the last couple of years presenting at ACDA conferences mm-hmm. and things about arranging because there's such a there's such a high interest in that topic. And I just had an epiphany one day where I kind of realized, well, you know, we don't ever teach arranging until you get to, you know, sort of the advanced collegiate level. The first time I ever took an arranging class was uh, my last semester of my master's degree. You know, and at that point, I was already a working arranger. Right. And, and so I was just thinking about like, well, how can I, how can I sort of boil down the information so that um, you can start teaching the basic principles at a younger age that, you know, um, you don't have to know music theory necessarily. You don't have to know how to use finale, but just like, how do you boil it down to the concepts so that, because otherwise the only chance if we don't do that, then we're limiting our students' exposure to that. I mean, if if the only time students are going to learn about arranging is in college, then mm-hmm. we're, you know, taking 95% of them out of the equation. You know, and who knows, right. a lot of a lot of students may really gravitate to that and be interested in that if they're just shown how to do it. I'm so glad you said it because I have a student right now and I've been dying for this conversation so I could ask you this question. I have a student, high school student, incredible arranger, all by ear. Has a really cool style, and she's arranged a piece for us to do this Christmas. And I'm working on transcribing it because, you know, I need to make sure that we could all learn it by ear. But it's it's a little more complicated than some of us are going to be able to pick up by ear. And the piano part is so cool. And when she plays it, she's like crossing hands over, and it is awesome. But she just happened to be encouraged to make up stuff on the piano at home and now she's at the point, how do I even write it down? That type of stuff. Well, I don't think you need to unless unless that's the, the best way of, of transmitting it to your mm-hmm. students. But I think that's part of the divide, honestly, between, you know, uh, these aren't perfect terms, you know, but between the classical world and the commercial world, mm-hmm. right? Because um, a lot of the songs you hear on the radio, like those instrumental parts, they're just making it up in the studio. You know, they've just got chord symbols and and... And they just keep going and doing different takes until they get the right feel. And, mm-hmm. and and a lot of my job as an arranger is to go back and like figure out what they did and then notate it so other people can do it. Right. Um, but I think I think that's the biggest hesitation with um, with teaching arranging. You know, it's 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 this feeling. Well, if we can't notate it, then we can't do it. Or if they don't understand all the rules of theory and voice leading, they can't do it. Well, that's not true. You know, no, if you no, can no. hear it, if you can hear it then you can, you know, it's just a question of, well, how do you get other people to perform it with you? So what I tell people is, you know, you can, you know, if you have somebody that's gifted in, you know, 
transcribing things and notating them, then great. You know, or if you want to specifically teach your class to do that, then by all means, force them to write it down. You know, but if you don't want to fight that battle, like you can have them record things, you can have mm-hmm. them just sing in small groups and experiment and figure things out. There's a lot of ways that you can um, just get them creating without necessarily getting bogged down in all of the the rules, if you will, you know, and, and, and maybe, maybe you teach them a little bit of theory, you know, maybe you, you teach them what a one chord is and a four mm-hmm. chord and a five chord. And then you just say, well, don't worry about the rest till later. Right. I mean, right? That's but the just thing. giving them the, that foundation. Yeah. The piece that she, cause she recorded it and it is incredible. And just as it is, it's perfect. And I've played it for the rest of the choir and everyone's super stoked to learn it, but there's just little things that some of our, like, I would be fine learning it. About 80% of my singers would be fine learning it that way. But there's just a few that need to see not the whole anything, but like that outline of where it's going and what it is. Because, you know, we have all those different learnings in the room. But it is so cool that she's able to arrange this stuff, knowing that she can't write it down. She just knows how to play it and how to sing it. And it's awesome stuff. Well, and just imagine if you had said like, well, I don't I don't know what to do with this. You know, or 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 we can't do it unless it's written down. You know, uh, and I understand for some people getting together and learning it by ear is maybe not realistic. I mean, if you're especially if you're in like a large you know orchestra mm-hmm. or something like that, it's it's hard to teach fifty violin players you know the same part without yeah, writing it. Here's down. how it goes. Get, Ready, set. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get that, but um, but there's still ways I think you can you can make it happen. You know, mm-hmm. use smaller groups or um, even just recording and layering things. You know, using GarageBand or something like that. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like arranging is a great introductory lesson to bigger topics like composition or even like music theory. You know, because you're starting if you're if at least if you're arranging songs those typically have a simpler chord progression right so you're kind of giving them little bite-sized packets of music theory right like there i mean there are some popular songs that only have one chord Mm -hmm. and so you can just start with that like here is here's this song and the only notes you have to worry about are c e and g because we're in a c major you know and and then when they get to music theory they already have that sort of foundation of like i know what chords are i know that Chord progressions are a thing, you know. I understand basic song form, you know. Once you know verse chorus, it it's not that big of a stretch to translate it to sonata form and talk mm-hmm. about A, B, and recapitulation and all that stuff. I usually teach that with Oreos and iced cookies. I love you have that. an Oreo and then you have an iced cookie and then they repeat, so you get a second Oreo and a second iced cookie. Then you crumble them all up and mash them up, and then the Oreo comes back. Sometimes with a little dabble of icing on top. I think that's perfect. Plus, you get to eat Oreos. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite way. Spoiler alert. I've okay, seen th- that. I've seen that too for. Um, I think for triads, mm-hmm. you know, like you because you have the you have the like, what is it like? You know, minor, major, minor thirds, like the, mm-hmm. the like the stacking thirds thing. And I've seen people get Oreos and for like all the extended like tertiary Double harmonies, stuff. like adding on like extra extra layers of Oreos. You have this giant like. Anyway, that's Sounds that's amazing. a tangent. But well, um, after this food-based teaching, I fully support <laughs> food-based teaching. Anything you can do to eat in the classroom, go for it. Okay, so this is another good segue. So we, we need to talk about commercial music and how educators, and I know we're using you know air quotes here, with classical backgrounds. How can those of us listening incorporate 
commercial music ideas into the classroom to support what we're already doing? You've given us some ideas with this whole arranging, but what are, tell us more. Well, I was, the, the way I was taught was that music was music and good music was good music and it didn't really matter the style. And so when I was in choir in high school, like we would do show choir, we would sing pop arrangements of Beyonce or Stevie Wonder or whoever. And then the next day we'd be rehearsing, you know, Eric Whitaker and, and, and Bach and Handel. And, and, and so there wasn't that division. A lot of, a lot of programs divide sort of by ensemble. It's like, well, this group over here is my contemporary acapella. And this group over here is my, you know, classical choral. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I, I don't think you need to split it up that way. I think you can have the same group of kids doing all these different things and teaching them to kind of just shift gears Mm -hmm. as they are in rehearsal and as they're performing. So, I I mean, I guess the obvious one is program, you know, popular styles of music and then just, you know, do your, do your research, do your due diligence and figure out how to get the right sound out of your students, you know, whether or not you're an instrumental or a vocal ensemble, you know, it's not any different for, for horn players, you know, if you're a trombone player, like you, you articulate things differently in a jazz ensemble than you do in a concert ensemble. And, and so, um, you know, that it's, there can be a lot of, there can be learning pains at the beginning mm-hmm. to kind of figure out how to shift gears like that. But once you get the hang of it, like it really pays dividends um, it makes you more versatile as a musician. It makes it really, really, really makes your ear a lot stronger that you can start hearing things and picking things out. So I guess that's the first thing is, you know, performing the music and not being afraid of the music. And 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 I shouldn't say not being afraid, putting that on putting it on equal level, like making mm-hmm. different styles of music. There's a there's a lot of discussions going on about you know, the canon right now and what should the canon be and how have we elevated all of these dead old white guys over all these other wonderful forms of music, you know? And so I think um, just taking all music and putting it on a level playing field, you know, and if you're singing a gospel, that's equally as valid and equally as important as, as a, you know, a, as a Beethoven or even as a Katy Perry, you know, like mm-hmm. music is music. Music is music. I think that's key. Now, you just, you kind of hinted on it. You talked about the canon and you had given in those pre-episode notes a quote. You said you like to call it canon versus the career. Can you tell us a little bit about that and explain what you mean? Well, I think this applies maybe more to um, like music majors in college, but, but certainly it trickles down. There's this kind of conflict between like the 400 years of, of tradition that we're expected to learn, but then the demands of the real world. Um, and the example I like to give is, you know, if you, if you spend, if you spend your four years in college, you know, only singing Italian arias, and then you go and try audition for Broadway or a cruise ship gig, or even, you know, a, a church worship team or something like that, like you're not going to be prepared. And so you, you've got to, um, you've got to sort of balance. It's like we were talking about before the show, you know, there's all these things that you don't get taught in music ed classes that you need to know to be an educator. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it's, it's, it's hard because there's just so much music. You know, if you open up, if you open up yourself to all styles of music, then you've like quintupled the amount of rep you need to know and theory you need to know. And so it's, it's definitely, um, not an easy task, 
But I think if you just get too narrowly focused on, well, this is this is what I was taught in school, or this is what I'm expected to know. And it's true, like your students need to know the classics. But if you don't also teach them what's out there currently in the world, like they're not going to be ready to face it. I think that's, it's fun too to listen. Like I, we, Monday nights is rehearsal night for my community group. And last night we, you know, we had a really fun little fugue. And then we did a, a, a piece from a film. And then we did some vocal jazz. And it is so interesting to see their brain shift, but also to push myself. I always pick one piece that I am petrified of. They don't know it, but I have to do so much work to just push my envelope. And I think if I don't have one scary piece every semester, I'm not growing. So if I'm having them grow, I better find a way to grow. So I picked a super crunchy, jazzy piece that is just not my normal. Yeah. And they love it. They well, love and that's it. the thing. And that's the thing we haven't talked about. Like if you're only singing one type of music in your choir, you're only going to get one kind of student that wants to sign up for choir, Mm -hmm. you know, but if you're singing all different genres, you're going to open yourself up to, you're going to, you're going to create opportunities to not only recruit more students into your ensemble, but also expose them to different kinds of music and maybe show them something that they didn't think they would like. But like you said, they just gravitate to. So let's go back to this big thing of programming, because I think you've won us all over. Like if we aren't already doing it, just a reminder, diversify your programming and look into the commercial music side as opportunities. Where do teachers need to look, whether they're band, orchestra, choir, general music, where do they look for this stuff? That is a great question. Um, Before we get to that, I just want to mention that... um, We talked about putting music on equal footing, right? And so I think that means with the way you program your concert, um, thinking about how the styles of music relate to each other, you know, and 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 not just having your, you know, com- contemporary piece at the end, you know, sort of the, mm-hmm. that's sort of the cliche, right? Like we're going to end with a pop song because everyone knows it, right? Um, but really thinking about like the concert program as a whole and how do these pieces of music interact with each other and how do we, whether or not you have a specific narrative for the concert, um, just like how how does it make the audience feel and how does it flow from one to the other and how do we show all these different sides of our voice? Or if you're a band, you know, how do we show all these different, maybe there's specific instruments that get featured in one or the other. Um, but I, yeah, I think programming is more than just, you know, all right, I included my one pop song and I'm good, right? Like right. that's not that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about truly valuing all the music on the same level and maybe you know some sometimes you're designing a concert program around a specific theme sometimes it's well i need to teach my kids how to do this you know mm-hmm. so they need a piece that teaches them how to do it right i mean so it can be more practical too but um but yeah don't just make it don't just sort of make it the throwaway at the end you know the week before the concert ah we're pulling out this stock chart and we're going to you know we're going to sing uh you know bridge over troubled waters cuz everyone loves that song you know like you've got to put the same effort into into it as you do the other uh, pieces of your program. But but yeah, so where do you find it? Um, that really depends on the genre, which I know is not a very helpful answer. But um, most of the publishing companies have um, arrangements of popular songs in their catalogs. I mean, really, for the most part, you're going to be talking about arrangements because um, most of the time, commercial music was not written for your specific ensemble. 
you know, uh, and so it's going to have to be adapted in some way. Now, that being said, there are pieces of, of commercial music, you know, I'm thinking about like in the choral world, there are things that are written for movies that are written for choir. Like that's an original piece of commercial mm-hmm. choral music. Um, you know, things like Christopher 10, the civilization theme, you know, Halo, the, that main theme, like there's choir in some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But even even in those situations, like it's probably going to be need, needed to be adapted in some way. Um, it's a little different when you look on more of the jazz. I love that side. you went that direction. I'm over here thinking like Frozen opens with a choir. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but there you go. I mean. Um, like that's, that's my point is it's not necessarily about style, you know, like those are legitimate choral pieces in Frozen, you know, and you can, and they're all based off of the, you know, the native like languages of, you know, the people that lived above the Arctic circle, you know, so there's a lot. Yeah. All that stuff. (laughs) No, it's awesome. (laughs) No, but I, I think it's a little different on the, on the jazz side and the vocal jazz side, because you do have more composers there that are writing original works for vocal jazz ensembles and specifically with that like grouping in mind um you know broadway is another source of material um if you're an instrumental ensemble like you can get um you can get transcriptions of uh movie scores um so Think about all the places that you hear music out in the real world, you know, uh, TV, radio, film, video games, and just anywhere you can find music, you can probably find some version of that that you can perform. And if not, you can arrange it yourself. Okay, so talk to us about the laws and stuff with that, because I know that gets really dicey. Yeah, um, I get the sense, especially after the pandemic, that music educators are just afraid of copyright. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you should be afraid. Like if that was, if I, if I could leave one message, it's don't be afraid. Now you got to ask permission, right? You, but don't be afraid to ask is my point. Um, we can, we can go on a long tangent about copyright, but um, the simple explainer is just that for every right associated with a song, there's a different kind of license. So like if you want to perform a song, that's a different permission than if you wanted to arrange versus if you wanted to record a video versus if you wanted to put it on Spotify, right? Like all of these different ways of using music, they're kind of chopped up and separated into different categories of licensing. And so the hard part about it is just figuring out who controls the music and then figuring out how to contact them and get the permission you need. And sometimes it takes time, you know, so you have to give yourself a couple of months, maybe. Um, That being said, the arranging side has gotten a lot easier because um, publishers have kind of woken up to what's happening in music education. And a lot of them have really become open to particularly the arranging side of things. So like for the contemporary acapella and uh, show choir categories like they're most of the major publishers are familiar with what that is and the permissions that you need to do those arrangements. Um, and then how Leonard has a program called arrange me where they have this great big list of songs that they've pre cleared for you to make arrangements of and publish through them on their website. So you go to arrangeme.com, you make an account um, and then you can just search on the song list. And you know, if 
if the opening from Frozen is on that list, right, then you can do your own arrangement of that song and you can upload it. You go to the arrangeme.com website and they have their great big list of songs that they've pre-cleared for um, for arranging. So you just go on there and you find the song you're looking for. And if the song is on the list, um, then you just select it. You know, it'll tell you the copyright information to put on your score. You upload it. It goes for sale at Sheet Music Plus and SheetMusicDirect.com. And you just buy however many copies you need for your ensemble. And it's legal. And it's it's all above board. Um, I mean, there's some limitations to it. But for the most part, like, that's going to cover... I don't know, 90% of your needs as a music educator. Um, and so if you're listening to this thinking, oh, well, I really want to self-publish my arrangements and my compositions, um, I have a whole podcast dedicated to that subject that you can check out. Um, it's called Selling Sheet Music because I, you know, really like creative names. And um, <laughs> but it's just kind of it kind of it's kind of part interview series, part just explaining how um stuff works. Um, but um, the publishers have really, um, warmed up to the whole concept of self-publishing. And I really see a lot of parallels between like what we have happening on the songwriter side with Spotify and Apple music. You know, if you're a songwriter and you record, you, you can record something at home, you know, and upload it to streaming services the same day. And it's available all over the world. Well, there's a similar thing happening on the sheet music side of things. You know, you can create the sheet music on your computer and you can upload it to arrange me. Um, music notes has a similar program where you can clear songs and upload it. Um, JW pepper has a program for original compositions and public domain arrangements. Um, it's called my score. Um, so you can have your work for sale on JW pepper and, Sheet Music Plus and Music Notes and all these different places um, just on your own. Wow. I mean, that gives you really, we just start with arrangeme.com or my score and you run with it. Now, let's say I, I have your link to that podcast in the episode notes, but let's say someone is thinking, okay, well, I'd like to hire Garrett Breeze to arrange my next piece. How does that work? Um. Well, it's pretty much the same as any commissioning process, um, but there's just an extra step of making sure that you can clear the rights to the song, you know, okay. um, but you can, but you can reach out to me and, um, you know, just, uh, you can use the contact form on my website or you can reach out on social media and you can just give me an idea of what you're looking for. And then I'll just get back to you with, you know, kind of the details and the nitty gritty of, of, you know, if we can clear the rights, you know, and then how do we get it done? And at that point, it's just going back and forth on, on creative needs and, you know, logistical concerns and, and just getting to know, I really try to get to know the groups that I write for and understand um, what they're dealing with. And I'll just make this plug too. I feel like a lot of um, choirs or bands feel like they I don't know. They feel like they can't commission something because they've got like unusual instrumentation or their voicings unbalanced or they're a small ensemble. And I think those are the groups that having a custom arrangement like benefits the most. You know, if mm -hmm. you've got a hundred kids in your choir, you can pretty much buy anything and figure out how to make it sound good. Right. But if you only have, you know, two tenors and 20 altos and, you know, five <laughs> sopranos or whatever it happens to be like, then you can, you know, you can really benefit from having somebody, whether or not it's the director or an outside person, just taking a look at that and tailoring the music to what you have. 
And I think that's one of the great benefits of um, as an educator, you know, doing it yourself is just, I think for those small ensembles and those unbalanced ensembles, um, getting them to feel successful is hugely important. And so if you can give them an arrangement either by yourself or somebody else that makes them feel like, you know, not only is this for us, but we sound good singing it and we don't have to worry constantly about, oh, well, I need three altos to sing the tenor part here. And I need, you know, you to mm-hmm. switch over here and, you know, just taking all of that sort of like logistical stuff out of rehearsal and just focusing on the music. I think it goes a long way. And I think you've given us a lot of creative freedom to then do what we need to do. And I know you have a free course on your website too, about arranging in the classroom and all of that stuff. There's tons of resources and I'll link all of those in the episode notes. That's awesome. I appreciate it. And I, and I will just say too, um, going back to like, how do you shop for music? Um, you can also search for self-published composers. So you can either just do it through Google, you can either do it through Google or like on JW Pepper, like there's a little box in the giant, you know, search, um, Mm -hmm. filters on the side. Like you can search for my score composers. And so that means, composers that have uploaded it themselves you know same thing on sheet music plus you can look for like arrange me titles specifically um so if you're trying to branch out and find something new or somebody new um there's there are kind of ways to filter out um i don't know i guess just narrow your search down to a specific genre or a specific um you know type of composer i guess you have to get good at using google is the is the short answer <laughs> but if you if you can if you can figure out kind of how to make those search filters work for you um another great place is youtube there's tons of of scores mm-hmm. on youtube um and independent composers that upload their music um and also just asking for recommendations from people um mm-hmm most everybody knows somebody who's an arranger or a composer and can steer you in that direction. So, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit more work than opening up the, the how Leonard catalog that got mailed to you and picking, you know, these three pieces or, you know, um, or going off of reading lists or however you find your music. But, um, I do think, and, and, and one thing we haven't talked about is just the representation piece of it all. Um, you know, self-publishing allows a lot more voices to be heard and a lot more um, types of music to be published and a lot, you know, a a greater diversity in the composer as well. That's such a good point too. Garrett, this has been a really enlightening and helpful conversation. Thank you for giving your time. But before you go, you have to tell us the one thing that matters. You already gave us like a teaser to something else, but you have space for another one. What's the one thing that really matters that you want the listener to walk away from this episode with? I think teaching your students how to create is invaluable. We spend so much time on performance and how how do we figure out the mechanics of making our voice work or making our instrument work or how do we tune this or that chord? You know, we spend so much time on the performance side of music. We don't often give our students the tools to create their own music, whether it's improvising or writing things down or recording or however you want to do it, whatever that format is. But you know, arranging was the thing that got me interested in music. It was, I don't know, there's just something about pulling it apart and putting it back together that um, just helped me to understand what was going on and helped me to be interested in it. And so you're always going to have those students that are more, um, more on the 
behind the scenes aspect of things. Like I, I hardly ever perform anymore. I do miss it, but you know, I spent, I spend most of my time, you know, alone at my desk, you know, staring at my computer, creating music and um, you know, I love it. So there's, you know, you're always going to have different types of people. Some people are going to hate that you made them arrange, you know, some people are going to hate it, but for those students that aren't going to learn it any other way, like it could be life-changing. That's so good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'll make sure to link to your podcast below so folks can learn more about you as well. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was super fun. There you have it, my friends. Commercial music, ways that we can use it to enhance what we're already doing, whether that's through programming or exploring new ways to put it into our curriculum. I love that visual of arranging, kind of being the unpacking, repacking of a piece of music. And how cool are all those resources that Garrett gave us that makes it possible that we can arrange for the people that we have in front of us. Lots of great ideas swimming around in my head. I'd love to hear what's in yours. Feel free to jump over to emilybirch.org slash contact. Let me know what is up. Make sure you check out all those resources from Garrett in the episode notes. And you know what? It's time. You, my friend, you matter. We all know that music matters, especially commercial music and arranging and composing and all those awesome things. And I'll see you next time on the Music That Matters podcast.